you had to step behind the veil of ignorance and forget who you are in the world, would you want to step back into a world that had Bitcoin or that didn't have Bitcoin? And for most people in the world, it's good for them that Bitcoin exists. Hello there. How are you all? I'm pretty chilled now. I had a nice relaxing time here in Miami. It's my first week off in a year. I had a chance to relax. Got a big year ahead. Got another football season. Loads of podcasts to make, loads of films. Also got this conference coming up. Anyway, welcome to the What Bitcoin Did podcast, which is brought to you by Iris Energy, the largest NASDAQ-listed Bitcoin miner using 100% renewable energy. I'm your host, Peter McCormack, and today we have Bradley Rettler on the show to complete the philosopher trio of Andrew Bailey, Craig Warmke, and now Mr. Bradley Rettler. Now, Bradley is an associate professor at the University of Wyoming, and as you lot know, these philosophical conversations, some of my absolute favorites. So we get into all sorts of stuff on the show, from money and Bitcoin to how many grains of rice make a heap and whether or not Danny is bored, which he is, by the way. So I hope you enjoy this one. If you've got any questions about this, you can hit me up. It's hello at whatbitcoindid.com. Also, we have our live event with Lynn Alden, Jess Snyder, Harry Sullick, and Troy Cross in one week today. There aren't many tickets left, so you want to check it out. Head over to whatbitcoindid.com and click on WPD Live. Bradley Rattler's in town. How you doing, man? <laughs> Pretty good. Welcome to Bedford. Thank you. It's awesome to be in Bedford. It's awesome to have you in Bedford. Uh, is Bradley the last of the Resistance Money crew? We've completed it. We've done the yeah. set. The trilogy. Isn't it? A, it's more than a trilogy. No, it's the trilogy. Troy's not like part of the Resistance Money crew. He's, he's not the ABC. So it's just Bradley, Andrew, and Craig. Yeah. I thought there was another one. No, if, if there was anyone else, it would be Troy. He's, he's the next closest. <laughs> An honorary member. Well, listen, don't make me cry like Andrew Bailey did. <laughs> that, that goes directly against Andrew's instructions. <laughs> <laughs> so you're, uh, you're coming from Wyoming. Yeah. I've been to Wyoming. Nice. Yeah, loved it. Yeah. Cowboy country. You, you've talked a bunch about coming back on the podcast. Well, so, so we want to go there. We want to do a resistance money event. Yeah. We want to get all you crazy bosses around the table. I have I have already started looking into what table that could be. It needs <laughs> somewhere to be somewhere in the university. A good big thick table. Yeah. We need a bottle of whiskey. And we need to get into the most important pertinent questions of time, money, space, and everything else. It'd be amazing. Uh, how was your flight over, man? All good? It was great. Yeah. You, you've been to the UK before? Once. Yeah. The the week before the pandemic. Well, I went I went to Liverpool. You went to Liverpool. Yeah. So you went to Liverpool and Bedford. Yeah. That's fascinating. That's an unusual, unusual couple of cities to go to. I'm probably one of the few people who those are the two towns that are most important to me. <laughs> well, <laughs> me, me too. You've got yeah. an enemy sat here. Do you know this? Why is he blue? Everton fan. How the fuck does someone <laughs> from Wyoming end up an Everton fan? There's got to be some weird story behind that. It, it's. Yeah, it's not too long. I grew up as a Green Bay Packers fan, so when I started watching, Premier oh, so you League like soccer, teams that suck? I, I like <laughs> I like teams that are involved in the community. And I found out about Everton in the community. Found out about the academy, and I was like, "That's the team for me." And Green, then they started sucking. <laughs> Green Bay Packers are the ones that are owned by the community, right? Yeah. And the area they is like it's was it like thirty thousand people live there or something? Yeah, Bay? there there are fewer people that live in Green Bay than the stadium holds. That's so. insane. Uh, Aaron Rodgers? Yeah. I know a little bit. I know Good a job. Bit. Yeah. Have they ever won the Super Bowl? Oh, yeah. They won the first Super Bowl and the second one. And then a couple after that, too. When was the first but one? In the 60s. Oh, 65. so the sport's that, that new? Yeah, they'd, they'd been playing for a while. But the, the first time the championship was called the Super Bowl. Oh, okay. Was 
Win by Green Bay. I quite like it. I prefer college football, mm-hmm. but I do like American football. I've got I've gone into it over the last few years. Nice. Yeah, I think it's good. Uh, I'm a 49ers fan. Okay. That's my team. For no other reason than when I first got into it, they were the biggest team. <laughs> yeah. I had a 49ers jacket when I was a kid because Joe Montana was awesome. And, yeah, it was Joe yeah. Montana, Jerry Rice, and then Steve Young came through. Mm-hmm. And it wasn't cool to have your own your own team's jacket for some reason, <laughs> like the team that you actually <laughs> liked that was local. So uh, I've got a big first opening question for you. Yeah. How many grains of sand make a heap? <sighs> That's a hard one. Um, somewhere between 15 and 100,000. <laughs> Why such a broad number? <laughs> I, I don't know. Danny, why am I asking this question? Uh, well, when we were on the phone, that was one of the things that you said. I can't remember, was it part of your, um, part of your class that you teach? Yeah, so I, I teach metaphysics and I write in metaphysics. And one of the big questions is about vagueness. Words that have application conditions whereby you can't really set determinate limits. Um, so, for example, heap or mountain, sort, sort of vague where the boundaries of a mountain are, bald, you don't, you don't have to have no hair to be bald. Um, Shout but, out to Udi. And me. And, <laughs> at a certain point, uh, it, it becomes vague whether you're bald or not. And then it's vague for a really long time until you have no hair at all. And then, and then it's not vague anymore. So, yeah, there, there are these questions in metaphysics about how we should deal with things like is, is a heap, is bald, when they apply, when they don't apply. Because sentences like um, Brad is bald are going to be false sentences like Danny is bald. Oh, I'm not sure. You don't have any hair, but it's by choice. Does that count? It's only partly uh, by choice. Okay. You're, you're optionally bald. Yeah. Yeah, I, I can tell. We you can see you a could shadow. easily have a lot of hair. You would have bald so. areas. Yeah. Yeah, I'd have bald areas. Yeah. I don't know why this conversation <laughs> started focusing on Danny's hair, but you know, there are people that that aren't optionally bald but are balding and at a certain point they'll go bald and, and there's there's questions in the middle about what to do about sentences ascribing baldness to them. Does it matter? There's a guy at the University of Leeds who makes a lot of money consulting with companies about how to pay taxes on things that they own when those things are uh, spatially separated. So do you own a ship if you own like all the parts of the ship but they're scattered around a lot because ships are taxed differently than, you know, wood and steel and things like that. And so he writes these philosophy-based arguments for whatever the lower tax thing is. I bet, I bet uh, HMRC hate this person. <laughs> there's always a financial incentive to these things. That, that's one way in which it's easy to see that how, how practical it can be. And so this is a module within a course? Yeah, this, this is one or two weeks of the metaphysics course that I teach, where we talk about time and space and causation and composition, and personal identity, and things like that. Let's get into, let's go with personal identity first. What do you discuss with that? Um, There we're primarily focused on what kinds of things persons are. So do we have souls? Are we purely material objects? Are we animals? Are we animals that have souls? which parts of us are essential to us being human, which parts of us are essential to ourselves. So it's a two-part question. One is what kind of thing are we? And then the other is what does it take to be the same person as another person? When are A and B the same person? 
do they have to have the same memories? Do they have to have the same physical parts? Um, so you get a lot of sci-fi that deals with this question. In, uh, in Star Trek, we have the transporter. Um, and what the transporter does is it scans your body and then using brand new material makes a, a complete duplicate of you somewhere else and destroys the original. It um, does? Yeah. At least the next generation transporter. That's I, I just don't watch Star Trek because I think it's shit. But I'm interested in this idea. Yeah, so so something appears across the universe that has exactly the same memories as you do. There's no other competitor because it's destroyed <laughs> the version that it scanned. Um, is that is that you? It has none of the same physical parts as you. There's no sort of causal connection between any of the things that the material object did, but it has all the same psychology as you. So if you were transported here rather than getting the flight in, it makes no difference to me because it's still the same Bradley. Yeah. But to you, it might. Yeah, I, I'm not sure. Or if you have the same memories, did you even know? I would think that I'm Bradley, and I would think that the transporter worked perfectly. Now, one problem is if you don't destroy the original, then you have two competitors, and then things get, get tricky because that the guy that's still sitting in Wyoming uh, having breakfast you know, with my family is going to think he's me. I'm going to think I'm me. I fly back home, and my wife's got a tough decision. <laughs> Or a party. <laughs> <laughs> That's one, one option. <laughs> and so, so what, what differs us from animals? Some people say nothing. Um, so Andrew Bailey, his dissertation was on the, the view that human beings are just animals. There's nothing that differentiates us from animals that's metaphysically interesting. Um, some people think animals don't have souls and people have souls. Some people think that um, we are just identical to souls. So mm -hmm. Rene Descartes famously thought we're just our minds and we ha this, we're related in some interesting way to this material object that's sitting here, but I'm a soul, you're a soul, every person is a soul. But if we just evolved from animals, at what point did we gain souls? There, there's different answers to that question. One, one theory is that um, when we attained a certain level of ability to think, then God just gave us souls. Yeah, that's one of us. Uh, <laughs> uh, there's, there's not really another view that, that believes in souls, that believes that we evolved from animals um, and says anything other than this idea that at a certain point we, we got complex enough that we somehow got souls. Hmm. Because if we, if we don't have soul, what is a soul? It would, it's some immaterial object that does not exist in space, but exists in time and causally interacts with the physical world mediated through a body. So there's a whole literature on what exactly the relationship between a soul and a body has to be such that, you know, my soul knows to interact with this body given that it's not located in space and does it, you know, raise your hand when I decide when my mind or soul decides I'm going to raise my hand. Why does this hand always go up and nobody else's hand ever goes up? Um, it's a, it's a completely mysterious question. <laughs> So that's going to get really interesting with AI. I bet that's coming up more and more in your disc. Well, it's with everything. We have it with the, the show. It's coming up all the time. I bet mm -hmm. with that, it's like, at what point does an AI have a soul? Yeah. At what point is an AI a person? And at what point does an AI have a soul? Could, could an AI be a person without a soul? That would make trouble for a lot of extant views and philosophy that treat these as the same thing. To be a person is to have a soul. So if we if there are aliens and we think they're 
rational and conscious and reason roughly like we do and have a moral code, then we think they're persons, then we should probably think they have souls, if you think persons have souls. And then could an AI so, have yeah. rights? Yeah. Which goes back to the film AI, embody it within a child, mm-hmm. and then you have more empathy for the AI. Yeah. Do you know what? I don't think, I think we should be going to school and university when we're much older so we can make the decisions we want. I want to go, I want to go back and study this. I literally said that to you when we were on the phone. Yeah. I said, I wish like 18 year old me could have been interested in this. But it wasn't. No. It's clubbing and yeah, yeah, girls exactly. and beer. Yeah. Yeah, it's fascinating. Tell, yeah, tell, tell more Wyoming students to take, take more philosophy. They're, they're doing engineering and agriculture and practical things. And I think, you know, you can get into that later. Why not, you know, take some time to, Think about these deep questions like when AI comes, which is going to be soon, how, how are we going to treat it? And Or is it here? Yeah, I don't think so. At least nothing that I've seen. I, I wouldn't count any of the large language learning things that I've seen even close to AI. What do you make of uh, the idea that people like Elon Musk and Steve uh, Wozniak are getting so concerned that they think there should be a pause on AI because they're worried about where it's going to go? That makes sense to me. I'm, a lot of times, uh, in ev- almost every case, technological innovation outstrips like moral and ethical discussion of how to handle it, and that's often led to huge fractures in and communities and in countries and things like that. And so it makes sense. I mean, it's not going to happen. So it's kind of silly. Well, it's almost too too late as well. Yeah. We made a show the other day saying that you cannot cage in AI because you can create AI outside of the frameworks they want to pause, which talk to the AI within the frameworks and learn from them. And so they can now be replicating everywhere. Yeah. So it's probably a bit too late. I wonder, do you know what I wonder? If we weren't such fuckheads, if humans weren't such uh, a miserable failure at times and so negative and killing each other, raping each other, murdering and stealing from each other constantly. We're just like a good group of animals that actually we would fear AI less. Do we fear AI because we're so bad ourselves <laughs> that we see the worst in it? Because maybe, we see maybe. the worst in ourselves. Yeah, I mean, you see, at least right now, with the closest things we have to AI, it just duplicates all of human failures when it comes to things like bullshitting. Yeah. It, the chat GPT will just make things up. And then if you try to tell it that it's wrong, it will insist that you're wrong. And, you know, sometimes it's obvious when it tells you that it's it's 2021. <laughs> <laughs> Have you seen this long conversation yeah. with, with chat GPT gaslighting? Or maybe it was Microsoft's uh, Bing AI. Um trying to tell someone that a performance that they're, they want to see is in the future because it's only 2020, 2021 and the performance is in 2022. And the person's like, but, but it's, it's June of 2022. Why, and like, no, it's not. <laughs> why is it all 2021? Is that part of it, them not wanting to fuck with you in the present? I think it was just like the data set they took at the time and then they're just building on that. Interesting. So it gets irrationally overconfident when it's wrong, just like humans. <laughs> it completely makes things up, just like humans. It knows now, though. <sighs> it's learned. Well, really? <laughs> Good job. Tell it it's wrong. <laughs> oh, this this was, I'm pretty sure this was the Bing search engine. So maybe uh, maybe ChatGPT is better at this. You're wrong, it's 2024. <laughs> Are you on the uh, new one? No, I don't have the new one. I apologize for the mistake. <laughs> Can you, you let me know? <laughs> 
what the correct year is. No, no, no. Oh, it was 1996. <laughs> awesome. <laughs> What's it saying? No, it knows. It's cut off. His, the current year is 2021 now, apparently. So yeah, he's just completely incorrect. Tell it. So it started with saying it's 2023, and then it refused to believe it was said, 1996 and said it's 2023. It admits it's wrong, <laughs> even though it's not. Tell it his creator lied to it. <laughs> just say this could be a long show. Yeah, your creator. Oh, what's it saying? I put you are creator. That's really going to confuse I don't it. have the ability to. People do that enough that it, it's used to it. Yeah. Okay, it's gone on a rant here. What the fuck is he saying? He doesn't have the ability to evaluate the truthless, the truthfulness of its creators, which is quite interesting. Anyway, we've had all your... Uh, we, could, we could do this for hours. Yes, that'd be awesome. Um, we've had um, your friends Andrew Bailey, Craig Warmke, and Troy Cross on the show. Some of my, some of my favorite shows. I absolutely love making these shows, and I can't single any of them out because I enjoy them all for all different reasons. Uh, I had a particularly long and interesting conversation with Andrew Bailey, which went all over the place, and I loved it. Um, but, but I'm just in, interested, how, how did you lot all meet? How did you coalesce around this idea of talking about resistance money? Andrew and I met in 2005 when I went to grad school at the place that he was doing undergrad. And my sister, who had done undergrad there, was friends with Andrew. So I met him then. He was going to do philosophy. I was there to do philosophy. So we started talking about free will and other kinds of things. And then when I went to Notre Dame, um, Andrew and I lived together for five years, I think, there. Um, when I was applying to grad schools to go where I eventually went to Notre Dame, Craig was also applying to grad schools. And we started talking about our experiences on the job market together. And then he ended up getting accepted to Notre Dame but going somewhere else. And then I didn't talk to him until 2017, maybe maybe off and on. I think he visited once because uh, he, he was in town for something or other. But I went to a conference in 2017 to give a paper on like objects and properties. And Craig was giving a paper called What is Bitcoin? Which has turned into the article, What is Bitcoin? Um, and I was like, Craig, I didn't know you knew anything about Bitcoin. I didn't know you cared about Bitcoin. I didn't know anyone in philosophy had an active research program in Bitcoin. And he was like, well, nobody does except for me. And I was like, well, you know, Andrew and I uh, have been talking about Bitcoin for, off and on for a couple of years, not as a philosophical interest, but just for fun, uh, imagining the possibilities. We should start talking about this. So we just got a, a Google Hangout going where we talked about Bitcoin. And then we decided to try to write a philosophy paper together, kind of surveying various options in, in metaphysics and mostly, um, but some philosophy or economics of what Bitcoin uh, is or could be. And the place that we pitched it said no, they wanted something on blockchain and we compromised <laughs> on cryptocurrency. Um, so we, we ended up writing the philosophy, politics and economics of cryptocurrency two-part series, which was published in Philosophy Compass, which is the best venue for sort of overviews of interesting issues in philosophy that are kind of opinionated introductions to the topic for people who uh, know things about philosophy. But kind of the whole time that we were working on that, we were thinking, after this, we're going to write a book, and the book's going to be about Bitcoin. So that's what we did. What, what, <laughs> we what drew you to Bitcoin? Um, from a metaphysics perspective. Well, it, it wasn't metaphysics, actually. It was my fourth year in grad school. I came back from summer break, and one of 
uh, my friends had gotten super into Bitcoin and he no longer wanted to talk about philosophy. He only wanted to talk about Bitcoin. Okay. And he was like sending money via wire transfer to Russian banks um, to get Bitcoin on BTCE. And then that, that's all he wanted. So he started explaining what it was to me. And at first I thought it was the same kind of money that's in your bank account. And he's like, no, 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 there's, there's nothing backing it except itself. Um, and the first thing I thought of was uh, I lived in Singapore for a little bit as a kid. And I remembered seeing the lines of people lined up the foreign workers who were lined up in the malls to send money back home to the Philippines and Bangladesh and India and things like that. And I thought this is going to revolutionize cross-border uh, remittance payments. Instead of Western Union taking 25%, this is going to cost like three cents. This is amazing. I'm, I'm, I'm into this. And then I... Just didn't think about it for a long time until, yeah, basically until Craig came along. We got coffees coming in, by the way. Did we order one for Bradley? I don't think we did. I'm sorry, Bradley. You can have mine if you want it. Thank you. <laughs> you can, you can, no, you can totally have it. I've had lots of coffee today. What do you drink? What kind of coffee do you normally have? I normally have drip coffee, which does not seem to exist in this country. No. Someone knocked over my Americano on the train. But a, oh, <sighs> so, motherfucker. Yeah. I mean, basically you want a black Thank coffee. You. Yeah. We can make you a black coffee. Oh, yeah, yeah Emma will make you a coffee. Is that okay? Till then, you can watch us drink ours. Thanks. <laughs> what oh. is coffee? That <laughs> <laughs> you were going to answer. <laughs> That's a philosophically interesting question. <laughs> you, you have count nouns and mass nouns, and so, like water can be, you know, this much or this much, and it's still we don't say like one or two in, until it's somehow individuated in containers. <laughs> <laughs> so when you add some water to more water, it's just water. Whereas like when you add one apple to another apple, it's two apples. So <laughs> and you can drink half a cup of coffee you and refill it and it's still a cup of coffee. It's still coffee, yeah. When does it not become coffee anymore? How many times can you do that? You're, you're still adding coffee? No, you're just adding water. Water, oh. You drink half and you add water. You drink that's, half? that's a vagueness question. It, yeah. when's, when's it still coffee? There's probably no no fact of the matter. Huh. At some points, it's obviously coffee. At, at a certain point, it becomes obviously not coffee. But who gets to decide that? When it's obviously not coffee to me, it might be different from you. Yeah. When it's not coffee, will definitely be different. When it's obviously not coffee, could also be different. So yeah. that's another level up of vagueness. So, so there's not only vagueness, but there's this meta level of vagueness, which is that when we di we disagree, like when when someone is obviously not bald and when someone is obviously bald. It's almost like with Bedford, when did we win the league? Because mathematically we won it on Monday, but we were obviously, we'd obviously won it on the Saturday against Langford. Yeah, but you hadn't won it. But we, but we had. We were in a scenario, this is one for you, tell me about this, where this sits in the world of this. So on Saturday when we beat Langford, uh, we hadn't mathematically won the league in that if we'd have lost our last three games and another team had won their last five, they would have ended up on the same points. It's a possibility. But then, then it goes to goal difference. Go, it goes to goal difference. Our goal difference was 30 more than 30 theirs. more than theirs. <laughs> yeah, maybe even more. Uh -huh. So, yes, mathematically, they could have won the league. They could have won every game like 8-0. But they hadn't won any games 8-0 that season. So... The, the mathematically they could have won the league, but they were never. It was almost an impossibility. They were. They would have to do something they hadn't done every game 
four five games and we would have to lose all three of our last games when we'd only lost three all season. And so we knew we'd won the league, but we hadn't actually mm. won the league. And that became a big conversation all week. <laughs> Particularly some people explain it over and over again. I was like, oh, well, we've, we've won the league. But we haven't won the league, but we won the league. So when did we yeah. win the league? Well, philosophers are very permissive with possibilities. So as long as it's not contradictory to suppose that something happens, then we, we say, for the most part, we say it's possible. So it's possible that everyone on your, on your team got sick and you couldn't play your games and... Somehow this other team went. So there's a world in which that happens. It's very distant from this world. Um, we talk about it in terms of possible worlds, which are just ways things could have gone. And so I'm not sure when you won the league, but as long as it was possible that you didn't win the league, I would say you, you didn't win the league. Well, I'll throw another one in. I, I actually think we won the league when we won away at Rush, uh, Rugby Borough. I mean, and there was a distinct possibility we could have... Mm -hmm still lost the league at that point. But I think that was the win that won us the league. Mm -hmm. I think that was the point, okay, I know we've done it now. Yeah. They're not, they're not coming back. If we'd have lost that game, it could have been a different scenario. Yeah, so you didn't know that you had one. You just knew that you will win. I, th I think I that, know we will win the league. Yeah, or I think here. that win yeah. won us the league. In mm -hmm. that, that there was a moment in time and it was like a fork in the road. If they'd mm -hmm. have won that, things would have changed. We still could have won the league, and we probably should have won the league. But I think if you ask anyone, where did we win the league? They'll say rugby bar. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So I think you can know things that, that, it, that could turn out to be false. In this case, obviously, it didn't. So I would say you knew back then that you would win the league. But I, don't, I wouldn't say that you had won the league yeah. at that point. Interesting. This show is brought to you by BitCasino. Now, BitCasino was established in 2013 and is the world's first licensed Bitcoin casino. It is trusted by tens of thousands of players worldwide, and not only do they have cutting-edge security, but they offer fast withdrawals and VIP experiences that money can't buy. BitCasino also has over 2,800 games and tournaments to try out. And with 24-7 live chat support, you can always get the help you need. To find out more, please head over to bitcasino.io, the first Bitcoin casino to win an EGR award. That is bitcasino.io, which is B-I-T-C-A-S-I-N-O dot I-O. And please remember to gamble responsibly. Also today, we have Unchained Now. If you've been listening to my show for a while, you'll know I'm a big fan of saving Bitcoin for the long term. I'm a hodler, which is why I'm happy to recommend the Unchained IRA. Their Bitcoin IRA lets you control the keys to your tax-advantaged Bitcoin, and if you have a Roth IRA, that means you don't pay capital gains on the price appreciation. Now, unfortunately, most IRA providers require that you give up control of your Bitcoin, but not with Unchained. Controlling your keys with the Unchained IRA protects you from exchange hacks or frozen accounts, and Unchained is an all-in-one solution. They'll help you establish a traditional or Roth IRA, set up your cold storage vault, roll over your existing 401k or IRA, and if you want one-on-one -on -one guidance, their concierge team will send you devices and walk you through setting up and securing your keys at your own pace. If you want to set up your IRA today, head over to unchained.com forward slash what Bitcoin did or schedule a complimentary consultation to learn more. That is unchained.com forward slash what Bitcoin did, which is U-N-C-H-A-I-N-E-D dot com 
forward slash what Bitcoin did. And if you want to get $50 off, please use the promo code what Bitcoin did at the checkout. Next up today, we have Wasabi, who I am using to keep my Bitcoin private. Now, Wasabi is the easiest way to send and receive Bitcoin privately. And even for non-technical people like me, it is effortless and provides privacy by default. Now, with Wasabi, there is no minimum amount, so you can get started coin joining straight away. And Wasabi users make coin join transactions together with BTC Pay and Trezor users, and BTC Pay server users can make payments in CoinJoin, which saves on fees and is a privacy improvement. Also, Wasabi have just dropped a new feature. Now, Trezor Suite users can make coin joins directly on the hardware wallet, which is obviously very cool. Now, if you want to find out more, please head over to wasabiwallet.io, which is W-A-S-A-B-I-W-A-L-L-E-T dot I-O. Anyway, back to Bitcoin and resistance money. Yeah, so we wrote the book. Yeah. The book's done. I know. When can I get a copy? Can I, I, get sent, I sent it to Danny, but I said, don't give it to Peter. No, I didn't he say that. explicitly said that. Is that really true? No. So why, I, why, I did send it to Dave. Have you read it? I've read, I've read bits, but I've not read it all yet. So no, it's, it's yeah, pretty long. <laughs> it's really long. <laughs> when can I get a copy? I'll, I'll send you a copy. I want to read it. Yeah, yeah. So it's done. So it's done. We yeah. had a we had a conference in Seattle with some economists and philosophers, and do we have anyone else? Um, some political science folks uh, who gave us comments on it, and the editor of the book that works for Rutledge is sending it out to people to get comments back and then we'll revise. Because I don't think comments. the copy you sent me was the final copyright. No, no. No. It's it's far from but it was it was the the final draft yeah. of the first round. <laughs> Something like that. And what is the TLDR of the book? What are you trying to do with this? Because there's a lot of Bitcoin books and many overlap. What are you trying to do differently with this? Yeah. So in this book we want to argue that Bitcoin is overall good for the world. And the episode that you did with Craig is on this sort of central thought experiment of the book, which is if you had to step behind the veil of ignorance and forget who you are in the world, would you want to step back into a world that had Bitcoin or that didn't have Bitcoin? And for most people in the world, it's good for them that Bitcoin exists. And it's good for them because of the privacy that it offers. It's good for them because of the censorship resistance. It's good for them because it's inclusive. Um, and so we have a chapter on each of those things, trying to argue that Bitcoin is good for the world. And those, then we try to respond to some objections. We talk about how to secure money and what cost Bitcoin uh, secures itself at, uh, specifically environmentally. And then we have a chapter on objections where we deal with like six or seven objections, like what if Satoshi comes back and things like that. Um, and then we we tally it up at the end and we say, given where Bitcoin stands on privacy, censorship, resistance, inclusion, energy, these kinds of things, it, it ends up being better for the world that Bitcoin exists. So it's, it sounds like it's more like an academic paper as a book. Yeah, kind of. Which, I mean, we're, we're philosophers. Yeah. That's what we're trained in. So it's it's the subtitle is A Philosophical Case for Bitcoin. So we talk about whether privacy is good. We talk about whether... Uh, it's good to have money that doesn't have trusted authorities that can censor transactions, and there, you know, these are moral arguments that you that have premises um, that people can deny. Um, and we're trying to show that even though Bitcoin lets some bad people do some bad things, it also lets some good people do good things, and indeed, a lot more of that is happening than than the other. So we've got a progressive case for Bitcoin coming, and we've got a philosopher's case for Bitcoin coming. 
which is good, which means we get into much more nuanced arguments for different communities, which is great. How, how yeah. did you approach it? Did you tackle different chapters separately? Um, we got together in Wyoming for two weeks last summer, and we had 10 days of writing, and we tried to write up 1,000 or 2,000 words, so like eight, five to eight pages together. And then once we had sort of the core of what we wanted the chapter to look like, then we assigned different uh, chapters to different people. So Craig wrote, wrote the Veil one because he'd already written yeah. the DC Times article. Andrew and Troy have been doing a bunch on mining, so Andrew wrote the mining chapter. Um, I'm the progressive in the group, so I wrote the financial inclusion chapter. Um, and then some of them, the the responses to objections and things like that we did together. The The first couple chapters are explaining what Bitcoin is and how it works and why it's different than other cryptocurrencies. Um, and we wrote that together. And that's what we're talking about in Washington in a couple weeks at the, the BTC Policy Summit. Wow. When's the release so, date of the book? We don't know yet. It, it depends on how long it takes us to respond to the, the feedback and then how long it takes the press to actually publish it. I would expect sometime before the end of 2023, but I'm not sure. It would be great to get them all together. I know. and um, As a release thing. But Andrew's going back to, is it? do people know where he's from or where he lives? Well, yeah, we don't need to say it just in case, but. But yeah, so he's leaving the States though, right? Yeah. We'll fly so him we back. Need, yeah, we need to make we'll sure. We'll fly we, him back. Or do it he, sooner. He is, he'll fly back. He'll fly back. We need to do that. Yeah. In Wyoming. Yeah. Troy, Troy will fly out. He's Troy will definitely fly out. Yeah. Um, okay, so. Very cool. Well done. Congratulations. Thank Amazing. You. I can't wait to read it. I'm, I, I'm really proud of it. Yeah. <laughs> I um, really like the book. So what is money? A medium of exchange. Commonly accepted. Medium of exchange. <laughs> why, why is money that? Uh, I think, in, in, at least in philosophy, we, we picked a term and we applied it to some things. And then based on what we originally started using it to talk about, other things came to fall under it. Um, so it's a socially constructed thing. Um, there's no sort of scientific calculation that one could do to determine whether something's money. You can't run experiments on something to see. At least they wouldn't, they wouldn't look like science experiments. They, they look like other kinds of experiments. Um, like you'd go and see whether people, people are using it as a, a medium of exchange. Um, but we've got this term that applies to some things and doesn't apply to others, applies to some things at some times, but not at other times, uh, applies in some regions, but doesn't apply in other regions um, to the same thing. So like if you're in Iceland, the, the, the krona is money. Here in the U.S., maybe not. Um, so we have this, this thing that fulfills a role that we need played by, by something. And whatever plays that role counts as money. Is there any examples of animals using anything as money? I, no, I don't think so. Animals ever trade? They, they might barter they trade. Yeah, one, they... one thing for another, but they don't have like a, a thing that is commonly accepted that, that they'll use to you know, trade other things. The one thing I do know is that monkeys will pick fleas off animals and put them on themselves, and then they'll get other monkeys to groom them because they want to eat the fleas, but it's a way they get like a nice grooming. But that's like a, barter, a good massage. Right? Yeah, a good massage. <laughs> so the so so the flea is a barter, but not money. Yeah, I mean, I don't think you see monkeys collecting fleas and thinking, "Oh, you know what? I might want I might want a massage tomorrow." So yeah. I'm going to get some fleas today, and then I'll be able to trade them for a massage tomorrow. So it's an emergent um, human technology. I think so. Yeah, and it's it's done to play this role that 
uh, you know, you, I'm sure you've had people talk about this before, but, um, you know, if you make something that not everybody wants and you want something that the person who makes it doesn't want your thing, we, we need something that we can have in common to, to trade, um, back and forth with people so that we, we don't end up acquiring a bunch of things we don't need. And so who should issue money? How, how should money operate? Is there, is there a philosophical line to that question? I think there could be. I'm not sure that any philosophers, I, I think it, it might be the case that Andrew and Craig and I have come the closest to, of any philosophers to, to answering or trying to answer or even discussing that question. Um, I could be missing some people in philosophy of economics. Certainly economists have been asking this question, you know, for a long, long time. Um, in philosophy, it would, it would probably have to do with ethical questions. So there's no, there's no metaphysical or epistemological uh, concerns, I think, about money creation and money issuance. They would be moral and ethical. For example, um, what gives people the most freedom? What leads to the most human flourishing? Um, and then you can ask that about anything. Who should own football teams? Oh, there's there's a moral and ethical question to this. Should it be you know local people or should it be um, rich Saudi people? Arabian people, <laughs> yeah. Um, so you could you could subject the who ought to create money question to to any of the tests that you could subject anything else to. Why, why is it you not care about money? What what is it that's grabbing you about it? And and I'm, it's a loaded question. I'll tell you why in a second. Yeah, I can. I can't speak for Andrew and Craig. For me, um, it's global inequality and inequity, and people being born into positions where they don't have the ability, no matter how hard they work or what they do, to provide for themselves or their family and and be able to engage in the kinds of projects that I think humans need to in order to flourish. Whether that be art or music or something like that, um, there are way too many people who don't have enough, and. The more I thought about it and the more I thought about reasons why that might be, um, money creation and money governance is, I think, a big part of that. So the reason it's a loaded question is I uh, spoke to somebody yesterday and he'd written a book about inflation. I just put the simple question to him, why inflation? Why did you tackle that subject? And he said, I think it's the most important subject of our time. And I, and I kind of pushed him on that. I said, you mean any subject? And he's like, yes. It is the most important subject of our time, of any subject, is inflation. It has such a pervasive, uh, it's caused such damage to society. It is. Uh, it affects so many people for the benefit of the few, and nobody understands it, or a lot of people don't understand or what causes it. He said, it's the most, and I was like, you might be right. <laughs> like, you, like, I've never like, questioned that, but I think you might be right. We've seen entire nations destroyed by inflation over and over. We talk about Venezuela and Zimbabwe, but we've seen it right now. We've seen it so recently with Lebanon. We're now seeing it in uh, Argentina for probably their fifth time in 20 years. We're seeing it in the UK, the US. We're seeing the catastrophic effects that inflation has to tens, hundreds, maybe even billions of people worldwide. And I was like, yeah, you're right. It is the most important subject of our time. Yeah. And I mean, I'm not sure that that's true. No, that's his. That's his. Um, yeah. Yeah. But if you could convince me that inflation is the reason for climate change and inflation is the reason for, you know, global food shortages and people not having enough food, um, then I think 
yeah, maybe maybe that is the the. So I I think it's possible that something doesn't isn't the direct biggest problem, but is the cause of these other problems that are directly the the biggest problem. I I don't think I can do the link between climate change and inflation. I, I know people have tried. Yeah. I'm not sure whether it works, but has something to do with it. inflation, incentivizing consumption, and short-term thinking, and fill in lots of details. Yeah, maybe, yeah. maybe the design and nature of money, the design issuance of money, would be a better, most important subject of our time, mm-hmm. because money affects everybody, and as you said, so many live below the poverty line, and. There's so many t- incentives tied to how money is issued, operated, and inflation as part of that. Maybe just money is the most important issue of all time. You yeah. get money right, fix the money, fix the world. Yeah, I think if you if you look at the things people need, which is food, water, shelter, clothing, um, we do all that stuff, or at least most places do most of that stuff with money. And if you don't have enough money, then you can't get enough of those things. And if you can't get enough of those things, then you die. And the consequence so. of high inflation right now in the UK, said you said food, warmth, shelter. Is it food, warmth, shelter, you said? Uh, food, water, shelter. shelter. Yeah. I yeah. mean, pe- we know people cannot afford to eat as full meals. But we know people are skipping meals now in the UK. Mm-hmm. If they're um, particularly, hard, uh, particularly below the poverty line or they're choosing to feed their children over themselves. We know people are losing their homes. We kn- heating, so, yeah, yeah we're heating. We talked to her in an interview previously about warm banks. So we had food banks. We've now got warm banks, mm-hmm. and this is all directly related to the difficulties in the economy and the pressures of inflation and rising energy prices. Yeah. So one, one of my colleagues is Austrian, and he said there were places when he was growing up that you could go to for the day that were heated, so that you wouldn't have to pay to heat your house one day a week, and those have come back now. They have they haven't used them for decades, and they're using them again this this past winter and next winter. Yeah, so so we should yeah. be debating money more. It shouldn't just be, and it seems to just be locked in the world of you know, Bitcoiners mm-hmm. to this level of discussion or debate. I could be wrong. It could be, yeah, maybe it's discussed elsewhere. But I just feel like the Bitcoiners have really focused in on the nature of money, what it is, how it's issued how it operates, what its role is, and the pervasive things that governments do to money. I've talked to a lot of non-Bitcoiners, and when I introduce them to like why I'm, I'm working on Bitcoin, I talk about uh, these, what I think are moral issues, with how money is created and distributed, and also how money is spied on and watched and Visa. And, tar- and you, you get these stories about you know Target sending ads to people for products that they don't think they need, but it turns out they do need and it, it intuited it based on their own. And so there are people that are watching our transactions. There are, there are people that are blocking our transactions. Governments want more control, of course, always, not less. And so it's there are more and more consequences for purchasing certain kinds of things. The, the, the entire U.S. is somewhere between banning... Uh, mifeprestone, this uh, abortion drug. Um, So if you need to buy that and you probably don't want to use a credit card. (laughs) Um, So, so they immediately get it. And every single one of them has said, I've never thought about it. I've never even considered 
that there could be a different kind of money or that money could be governed differently. Um, now that I think about it, of course it seems obvious, but it just never occurred to me. So somehow so. trying to meet people where they want to be met, triggering them to think about it. Yeah. Um, when you think about money and with Bitcoin, we're, we're going to see, or we are seeing a transfer of wealth. We're seeing some people who have seen their uh, net wealth grow considerably because of the nature of Bitcoin. And we may see the reverse happen. We may see the death of fiat currencies and, and see this large transfer of wealth. Do you think about the moral implications of that? Oh, yeah. Because I do a lot. Yeah. Um, I, I would love to see people who have the least amount of money get into Bitcoin first. Yep. Um, I don't think we'll see people who have a lot of wealth be that harmed in terms of how much wealth they have by um, the increased use of Bitcoin because their wealth is not in currencies. Um, so people who do have money in currencies are, tend to be the people who are the poorest and they tend to be harmed the most by things like inflation. So I would like to see them get in first. And um, unfortunately, the people that they listen to are not interested in them getting into Bitcoin. So I think it's a, a big problem. What do you mean by that, the people they listen to? Um, I, I mean that the places that they place their trust in tend to be legacy institutions, which are slower to okay. realize new things. Uh, so, I mean, I, maybe I should slightly take that back because there, I think there are there is more distrust in general among um, poorer people than there is among wealthier people in systems and governments and things like that because they're not being well-served by them. Um, but I still think they have to trust someone and so they'll, whoever they trust, whether it's a certain news organization or something like that, it will not be people who are probably talking about Bitcoin. Mm. I think there's a huge like unit bias as well with that demographic. Like mm -hmm. I think um, trying to talk about Bitcoin in SaaS is much more useful. Because once you start talking about Bitcoin costing $31,000, like that, I've, I've had this conversation with people and it just completely turns them off. They don't understand that, like, even if you say you don't have to buy an entire Bitcoin, I think the Unis bias is mm -hmm. like a, a real hurdle. Yeah. <laughs> Wait, you, well, I, I can only afford 0. 0.000001. Yeah. <laughs> no, that, that's good. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it, that's hard to do. <laughs> yeah. It's, it's an interesting point where you talked about. Uh, the, pe the poorest or most underserved in society trust in government less because they haven't been served well by these uh, government or centralized institutions. So they would have less reason to trust than maybe the wealthier. But the wealthier may also distrust but have more reason to defend it because yeah. they benefit from the status quo. Yeah, that's true. So maybe rather than distrust, it's something like work against it or yeah. um, not believe. So the wealthy might not believe it. Um, but I they like might it. act as though they believe it and, and support it and act in accordance with it and all those kinds of things. I, I wrestle with the, uh, the, the idea that when we transition, you know, the like, um, 
Like Parker Lewis would say, gradually and suddenly. When we go through the suddenly period of transition from a fiat currency to a Bitcoin, what that what will that would be like? What kind of societal collapse may happen? I'm not saying will, may happen. The repricing of everything, the rebuilding of everything. It feels like you could almost see a, a collapse and then a rebuild of society. And that collapse bit worries me a lot. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it seems to me like the only way Bitcoin replaces is if there's a collapse. Otherwise, I think, I mean, what we talk about in the book and what I believe is far more likely to happen is we'll just have two systems running yeah. in parallel and you can go back and forth between them. And Bitcoin is there as an option for the people who want to use it in much more widely adopted way than it is today. But it's not going to replace fiat currencies unless, yeah, there's some sort of societal collapse. And that could look like a lot of different things. It could be natural disasters. It could be another pandemic that's substantially worse than this one. Um, but it, it could be multiple pandemics in a row <laughs> that um, force more printing and more printing and um, eventually some sort of hyperinflation. It's hard for me to imagine. And when I do imagine it, it seems really bad. <laughs> so I'm hoping that Bitcoin doesn't replace fiat currencies because the amount of devastation that would have to happen to people along the way for what for what I think it would take for that to happen seems not worth <laughs> the cost. Is there a moral case for printing money? Yeah, I think so. Yeah. I mean, I, I was not uh, against the, the printing of money to help people buy food and pay rent and stuff during the pandemic because I thought, if you're going to print money, this is exactly how you should do it. You should tell people that they're going to get money in their bank accounts and then you should give it to them. Rather than paying for a continued investment in the uh, military-industrial complex, forever yeah. wars, or, uh, or bailing out or, banks that yeah. have super wealthy clients who you mean are like, over their FDIC-insured limits, like yeah. direct-to-consumer QE, effectively. Yeah. So, so Francis Coppola's in extreme scenarios, is the quantitative easing for the people, and I think that yeah, that's exactly how you should do quantitative easing: is rely, mm-hmm. like let people have the money and then decide how to spend it. We spoke to somebody recently about that, didn't they? And they, was it Dan Tubb where they talked, or somebody's talked about there's two ways you can inject the money into the economy. Um, uh, and one of, you know, one would be, say, QE for the people, your stimmy checks. Uh, or you can do it by uh, QE, by buying up uh, uh, equity debts or you know, mortgage bonds, whatever they are. Uh, there's two ways. They have the exact same effect. But one gives the money to all the rich. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I think the moral questions around the money are some of the most interesting but the most challenging, but seem to always be the most obvious starting point to talk to people about money. Because I think when you start to explain the realities of, I don't even think many people understand really what money printing is or how it happens and the impact hmm. of it. it. It took me several years after starting to, do Bitcoin as a research interest, where I even felt competent to explain just a little bit about how money creation happens. And I still, you know, regularly, I mean, one of the reasons we had this workshop is because we were nervous that we said false things. And Will Luther said, you said many false things. <laughs> so it was, it was good to have this because it's it's really complicated. And Nick Batia's book has this diagram that has you know, tons of different boxes that I didn't know existed, <laughs> even as, a, as someone who researches related topics. So, yeah, I mean, when we when we think about how um, money is introduced in the economy, 
We don't think about the fact that we never voted for the person who's introducing it. We don't think about the fact that it doesn't go through the legislature of people that we did elect. Um, we don't think about the fact that we have no say in it. We don't think about the fact that it's not publicized. Um, or when it is, it's it's publicized in very small ways. Um, and we don't think about the fact that when it is publicized and people get outraged about it, and band together to do something like Occupy Wall Street that just quietly goes away. And these protest efforts to maybe try to change how things happen are, you know, the leaders are mollified and they go away and then the, the movements collapse and they get absorbed back into the system and nothing changes. So what if we taught money at school? We should the teach money in school. We never will, but what if we did? Some, some U.S. states at least mandate a certain number of hours of financial literacy training. Really? But it's it's way more about what compound interest is and how to balance, you know, accounts and things like that. It's much less about okay, there's this Federal Reserve <laughs> and there's a board and there's, you know, a chair and all these things. Um, they don't really teach you about they, they teach you how to work with money. They don't teach you like what money is or how it comes to be. Uh, I think a lot of a lot of that also is because it would be subjective. Maybe. I don't think it's subjective that the Federal Reserve has a board of governors no. and there's a chair and they get to set interest rates and how much is determined by that might be subjective. Uh, yeah, I didn't yeah. mean that. It's, it's sh I think for some people it's subjective. Should we have a central bank? Mm -hmm. I don't think we should. I think we should ha have more of a free banker model. We should allow banks to succeed and fail. But there's many people who argue about, no, we should have a central bank and we should be protecting the economy. We should be defending banks and we should be ensuring depositors so there is trust in the... Uh, you know, trusting their money and they can keep it in the money. I think certain things like that. And we know if the education comes from the, the Department of Education, which would be a government body, we know we know where their arguments would come from, what, mm -hmm. what, you know, what they would try and teach. So perhaps you can't ever teach that. Perhaps it has to be in a philosophy class. Yeah, I mean, when, once teachers, even high school teachers, have tenure, they could offer this as an elective, but it's not going to ever probably get into the the common curriculum <laughs> what do you what what ideas around money in bitcoin then do you most wrestle with what are the ones where you are like fucking i just don't know good question um let me think about that what do you guys disagree on you craig andrew we don't disagree on much when it comes to bitcoin which is nice um i think the the two issues that I probably wrestle with most are trying, one is this future-focused idea of what happens to the people who don't have enough as Bitcoin gets introduced. Uh, and the second is what happens to the climate. And how, is Bitcoin hastening the climate change or helping to incentivize solutions to it or some of both <laughs> and what happens in the end um, or what, which direction are we going in? Right. I think there's a lot of reason to think that the move from mining at home to industrial scale mining operations was bad for the climate. Um, now I think there's really good evidence that moving from these industrial scale miners that are using coal and, natural gas and things like that to renewable energy um, is maybe going to make Bitcoin carbon negative within 
like two to five years. And what will the New York Times write about then? Well, you know, they're not constrained by what's actually happening. (laughs) So they'll write the same thing they've been writing. This show is brought to you by Ledger. Now, Ledger is the world leader in Bitcoin security, and it's the best way to own and secure your private keys. If you're still holding Bitcoin on an exchange or with a custodian, it might be the time to take your security more seriously. Remember, not your keys, not your Bitcoin. Now, Ledger hardware wallets paired with the Ledger Live app are the easiest and safest way to start managing your own private keys. You can send and sign your Bitcoin transaction with full transparency in the Ledger Live app. And honestly, look, it could not be easier. I have been a Ledger user since 2017. I love their products and I'm still using the same hardware device I bought back then. Now, if you want to find out more or purchase a hardware wallet from Ledger, then please head over to shop.ledger.com, which is S-H-O-P dot L-E-D-G-E-R.com. Next up, we have Iris Energy. Now, Iris Energy is the largest NASDAQ-listed Bitcoin miner using 100% renewable energy. Their strategy is to target markets with low-cost, excess renewable energy, and they build out their own highly efficient Bitcoin data centers. They are led by a seasoned management team with a track record of success across renewables, infrastructure, and digital assets. Now, Danny and I met the team recently in Canada and were super impressed with their values, which align with us. So they are a great fit for what Bitcoin did and you, the listeners. Now, we are going to be working with the Iris Energy team on everything we do from podcasts to films and live events, and they are even sponsoring my football team, Rail Bedford. I'm really, really happy to be working with such a forward-thinking and sustainable Bitcoin company. But if you want to find out more about them, please head over to irisenergy.co, which is I-R-I-S-E-N-E-R-G-Y dot co. Next up, we have Ledin. From savings accounts to personal loans and even mortgages, Ledin's financial services enable Bitcoiners to experience the benefits of holding today without selling their Bitcoin. Ledin has a robust risk management strategy which always prioritizes safeguarding clients' assets with no DeFi yield farming. And Ledin only supports Bitcoin and USDC, two of the highest quality and most liquid assets in the industry. They also are dedicated to transparency and are the first digital asset lending company to complete a proof of reserves attestation, which they re-verify every six months. With multilingual support on standby 24-7, Ledin is there to support all your needs. To find out more, please head over to ledin.io, which is L-E-D-N dot I-O. So there are two really interesting points. I want to hone in on both of those. Let's talk about people not having enough. That goes back to that point of that transition, in that we may transition to a Bitcoin-based economy or a, or a global reserve currency, and most likely going to have a very uneven distribution. Uh, we could have Michael Saylor as the richest person in the world, uh, magnitudes more richer than someone like, say, Elon Musk is or Jeff Bezos is compared to to the average. Um, and we might have people who are unable to get to Bitcoin, and Bitcoin is yeah. all what people want. So you know, I've talked a lot about when I was in Venezuela, people want dollars. It might be everywhere you go, people now I only want Bitcoin. And people just cannot get access to it. And so how do we deal with that? Yeah, that worries me a lot, that the the people who need it most won't have ways to access it. And... I think the the last data that I've seen is that something like 87% of the world population has a smartphone. And it's really hard to, there, there are ways to have Bitcoin and not have a smartphone, but it's really hard. <laughs> it involves a lot of other people and a lot of walking, <laughs> things like that. So yeah, those that 13% is going to be people who are you know, lower down in the, the poverty line. Do we know why people don't have phones? Because I've been to some pretty desperately poor places and everyone still has a phone 
Yeah. Their issue maybe is credit or somewhere to charge it. I mean, I I was on the border with Colombia and Venezuela and Cucuta. Everyone had a phone, mm-hmm. and yet they didn't have any money to eat. But what they needed is a place to charge their phone, and they needed uh, uh, to access a wireless point to be able to communicate. They weren't. They didn't have a contract. They weren't on a network. Mm-hmm. Was, but they had a device. Was it their own phone, or was it like a family phone that they shared? It was a mix. Some people had their own phone, and some were sharing phones, and it should be shared between friends. Mm. But like everyone had access to a phone. Okay, so the people have a shared phone. That's a different scenario. If they're in, if the people who have a shared phone are counted among the thirteen percent of people who don't have a phone, yeah, um, then yeah, maybe maybe the problem isn't as big. Um, I also have been to a lot of places where. You would think driving down the street that people wouldn't have phones, and there, for example, in Indonesia, there are like twice as many phones as there are people. Mm. Um, and I've been to some pretty poverty-ridden places there and seen people with phones. So, yeah, I guess the the question is, when you have a money like this, people aren't people aren't going to be made worse off by Bitcoin existing. Um, but it would be nice if if Bitcoin made everybody better off, and. I'm not sure Bitcoin can directly make those people better off. It might indirectly do it by, you know, incentivizing the right kind of projects and things like that globally. But um, if they can't access Bitcoin, it's not going to help them directly. So I'd like to see, you know, more people working on solutions. At one point, I I was aware of some project that was going to distribute phones to people who needed them that were preloaded with Bitcoin wallets and some Bitcoin on them. I, I think Mark Moss was doing that with El Salvador. That's cool. Yeah, I think they were trying to get old people's old phones and get them distributed in, in to people in El Salvador, El Salvador who didn't have them. And I've certainly heard about that as well. Um, you've mentioned climate change a few times now, <laughs> so that's obviously for you the most pressing issue of our time. Pro- yeah, probably. And to yeah, it wouldn't be uh, unreasonable to say that there are people within the Bitcoin community who don't consider climate change to be an issue don't think we need to be uh, uh, so concerned about it that we sh- we can continue to burn fossil fuels. We will adapt. Um, it's a range of different opinions, but you you obviously have been exposed to that by mm-hmm. being part of the Bitcoin community. So, what do you? How do you think when you see that? Because I know how I react. I think that I I spent a long time studying philosophy. I got a PhD. I learned how to do philosophical research. And I think the papers that I write are really good because I have that training. And when I look for people to talk intelligently about climate change, I look for people who have been trained to uh, research and make models and test those models. And so I tend to trust the people who have expertise in that. Um, So I think that that's pretty settled. They're all in agreement that climate change is something that we need to worry about and we need to take steps to change. But not everyone's in agreement, even some scientists. I mean, I, like, I am on the side of people who's concerned about climate change, absolutely 100% on that side. Made it very clear over and over again. But I've also gone down that rabbit hole and trying to say, well, could I be wrong? Mm-hmm. Where And where could I be wrong? And it isn't 100% of scientists who believe that climate change is an issue. Or some people claim that it may be an issue, but that we just have to learn to adapt. We're not going to fix this issue. Some have become resigned to the fact that humans are not going to. We're too greedy and selfish. Yeah, I'm symp- I'm, I'm much more sympathetic to that line of, of argument. Because it's practical. So, yeah, I mean, I think something like 94 or 97% of publishing climate scientists think that 
the climate is changing and it has something to do with us. Um, and that we could do things to, to lessen that. Um, so I, I am not super interested in trying to adjudicate that debate because I, th I think it's pretty well settled. Um, whether we could actually, whether, whether we will actually do anything about it, I think is a much more important question. And one that I'm sympathetic to the idea that we've, we've come this far, <laughs> we've known for a while. And, um, you know, every, every time BP puts out some Twitter ad, that's like, what are you doing to help the climate? Someone says, well, you know, I'm not spilling millions of barrels of oil into <laughs> the ocean. That's what I'm doing today. Um, the, degree to which individuals have control over how much the climate changes. Um, the, the degree to which people like skip flying somewhere, you know, because they, they don't think it's worth the cost to the climate. Um, that is just absolutely dwarfed by these companies who have a profit motive to not care about the climate. And so there I'm really sympathetic to the idea that they're not going to stop doing that. And we need to, you know, figure out ways of mitigating the climate change that's happening without their cooperation. And do you, do you find a correlation between Bitcoin and that? What do you mean? In that we have to find a way to mitigate issues. Well, we've either got to find a way to reduce emissions and reduce uh, uh, the emissions of CO2, or we've got to find ways to mitigate uh, changes to the environment because of uh, an increase in CO2. Are you finding any connection between Bitcoin and that? Or do you think that two separate issues, there's no need to link the two? Um, I mean, I see the direct correlation with people who are trying to um, build Bitcoin mining facilities in areas where they can use renewable energy and subsidize. I, I, I tweeted at some point that like my dream is for, so I live in a town of 30,000 people. My dream is for there to be right outside that town. We have tons of wind and we have tons of sun. So like a solar and wind farm um, that pays for itself by mining Bitcoin with the excess that it produces. Um, then my next dream is for there to be a bunch of towns that have things like that and that Bitcoin might subsidize communities all around the world um, using renewable energy in this way. Um, I love hearing about the, the stuff that um, the, the, the operation is it the, the hash hut or something like that, that they put the, the Bitcoin mining like little tiny Bitcoin mining huts on top of uh, flared or vented methane stacks, and then they use it to mine Bitcoin. Oh, it's, it's, um, it's like Giga Energy does that. Maybe, I, yeah, I'm, I'm sure there are a bunch of people. I'm thinking of the one that's that's doing it in Colorado because that's closest to me. Um, but like, I love hearing about that kind of stuff. Turning a a gas that's forty times worse for the environment into one that's you know forty times less bad for. The, so I see the the direct interplay between. Bitcoin and climate change. Were you thinking there was like a more? No, I was like just wondering subtle, how, like, okay. you as a philosopher have thought about this. Uh, yeah, I haven't thought about it much philosophically. I've, I've thought about it more practically. Okay, like, could could Bitcoin incentivize massive renewable energy build out? And is that uh, one of the FUD topics you covered within the book? I, that, yeah, I mean the the security through energy chapter is I'm pretty sure the longest chapter in the book, and we spend a lot of time talking about the price of securing money in general. Because um, if, if it's not Bitcoin, you've got to somehow secure the US dollar and you've got um, all this fancy stuff that goes into the physical notes to make sure they're counterfeit proof and you've got all the fancy stuff that goes into digital security. Um, 
But then, yeah, we talk about how Bitcoin buys security and then ways that it might end up being actually good for the environment. So, I, I mean, one of, it seems like the biggest impediments to renewable energy build out is that the sun doesn't always shine and the wind's not mm. always blowing. And sometimes they overproduce. And so if you have uh, an energy consumer that's willing to buy at times of low demand in other places and willing to shut off at times of high demand, um, that can really help with, with renewable energy specifically. And that's exactly what Bitcoin miners are doing. With um, one of the other things that people attack Bitcoin for, uh, very early on, is that Bitcoin is used by criminals and terrorists and and such. Um, by having an open censorship-resistant money, not only can be used by good people, but it can also be used by bad people. How have you wrestled with that? Um, the first sentence of the book, and I do not Brilliant. anticipate this changing, is Bitcoin is for criminals. <laughs> <laughs> Meet people where they're at, right? <laughs> um, yeah, and so we, you know, we talk about what kinds of criminals uh, do and should use Bitcoin. It turns out not very many criminals should use Bitcoin <laughs> because uh, there's a public ledger and it's not super hard to track. So the people who do use Bitcoin tend to be people who are uh, breaking laws of countries that have lower enforcement, um, and it tends to be countries with laws that you know, maybe I don't agree with. And it's people who are using Bitcoin to break laws that I think should be broken. Like laws like women shouldn't be allowed to have any money, <laughs> things like that. Um, so it matters what kind of criminal we're talking about and what what kinds of laws they're breaking. And I think we're a long way from, from the situation in which Bitcoin is being used to pay for assassinations and things like that. Um, it's become people who are resisting regimes that are that have much fewer resources than than the regimes that you probably like the laws of whereas the US dollar is used by governments to do things which we could argue are equally criminal or morally unjust yeah and i think as far as i know the the currency of choice for you know people that are doing massive operations against U.S. laws, things like drug smuggling and things like that, is still U.S. $100 bills. So should we stop making those? <laughs> well, it's an interesting area to ponder when you start thinking about there's two forms of money. We have the U.S. dollar, but I mean, there's lots, but let's talk about the U.S. dollar versus Bitcoin. And you have people on the state side who want to restrict the use of Bitcoin, which we know is used by good people and activists and yeah, people who are in difficult living under difficult regimes, evade capital controls and such and such. And we've got those people saying, no, you cannot use that. This is bad money. Yet we are on the other flip side, seeing them as the state having full control to print, debase, use that money to fund things that we all fundamentally disagree with, which is forever wars and economic imperialism throughout the world. And it's that interesting kind of like, uh, comparison in that when you try and this is what you need to try and communicate to people but that means you have to you have to almost come to a place where you have a complete loss of faith within government or what you've believed has been right or true your whole time yeah i think that most people are not aware of who is using bitcoin yeah i think they think of it as like tech people on the west coast and criminals Specifically, people who are you know breaking U.S. laws and living in the U.S. and they 
the stories of people who are using Bitcoin in places like Belarus and Vietnam and Afghanistan and North Korea, <laughs> and, and the list goes on, um, are you know being told on your show and in Bitcoin Magazine and every once in a while maybe in Forbes or something, but never in in venues that most people that I talk to who aren't in Bitcoin read. So they don't hear about the good stuff. And I mean, one of the things I talk about in my critical thinking course is uh, what's called the evidence primacy effect. So the evidence that you get first will always shape your view of the thing that you're getting evidence about. And so if I tell you about this jerk, you know, that I met, um, and then I start telling you, he, you know, he's a really good father and so on. You'll still, you'll try to reinterpret all the later stuff in light of believing that he's a jerk. Cause that's the first thing I said. And so if the first thing people hear about Bitcoin is how, as how people are using it to break laws, then they have to, they have to interpret everything else. They don't have to, but they tend to interpret everything else through that lens. Can I, can I be for this thing that does this really bad thing? Whereas if you first introduce it to them by explaining you know, the story of Roya Maboob or something like that. Then the other stuff they'll interpret in light of that. Okay, so here, I know this is how Bitcoin brings freedom to people. Is it worth the cost of energy to do that? Is it worth potentially um, limiting the ability of governments to respond to crises by having this competitor and things like that? So what evidence you get first matters a lot. And unfortunately, people are getting, most people are getting the bad stuff first. This is why when you speak to most people, they say, well, yeah, it was two or three to four touch points before they finally went in. And that's why people then like the New York Times are making this job really hard for all of us by leading with misinformation. And the interesting part of that is, is it's not so much that, you know, we're talking about the New York Times article this week. It's not so much that article. The interesting point for that is when you see who's retweeted the article and then you go in, especially if they've retweeted with comment, then go and look at the comments and discussions afterwards. These people are already attacking. The people who retweeted are already attacking Bitcoin. And you already know they they only know as much as they've read in that article. They don't really know. But they're instantly becoming part of the anti-Bitcoin crowd. Mm-hmm. And what do you do about that? Yeah, or they, they've had some inkling, some yeah. association with Bitcoin and negativity in, in some way. Or they're on the and then this is index. like, yes. So anytime someone gives you evidence that allows you to continue to believe something you've ar- you already believe, you welcome it with open arms and you love it. Um, and anytime someone gives you evidence that contradicts what you believe, you tend to entrench and actually believe str- more strongly in the, in the thing you already believed. Um, it's a, a sort of possession model of belief. Like someone is attacking something that's mine. I need to fight them off. Um, and that, it's a really bad way of, of ending up with true beliefs. <laughs> why, why is there therefore such an inertia to, to people admitting they may be wrong? Because it's actually a liberating thing. You know, when, when you go out and say, you know what, I, this thing I thought I was wrong and I'm sorry. Majority of people are like, oh, well, well done. That's a, like people commend people you. Love you yeah. yeah, they love you and they commend you for it. They're like, okay, you're flawed, you, but you're honest. Yet there seems to be an inertia to admitting you're wrong. Yeah. I think this this comes from deep psychological tendencies within us to want to believe what the group believes. And that was very advantageous when we were hunter-gatherers. And sort of, there's been some really interesting philosophical work recently on like when to um, 
when to go against the the group's beliefs, when to be an, uh, a rebel and when to sort of toe the line and what causes people to choose to do one or the other. So yeah, it was for a long time, a really good idea for communities to cast out people who went against the community because it was hard to survive and you needed everyone working together. Um, and vestiges of that are not serving us well these days when we apply it to more abstract theoretical things. Like if everyone thinks that, that they heard something that they can kill and eat over there and you think that it was over there and you're insisting on, on going on everyone going that way. Um, they probably should leave you behind because you're not helping <laughs> survive. Now we apply that to, you know, abstract political philosophical discussions. And we still have our, our same mindset toward those beliefs, which is, this is mine. I'm going to keep it. This is what me and my friends believe. Um, and it costs us a lot to, to go against that. So that, that's probably a lot of the reason why the, there's kind of like for a long period of time, there's this group thing within Bitcoin, mm -hmm. whether it's, agreements about what bitcoin is or should be or small blocks but also then it starts to uh expand into other topics like i'm a carnivore i don't eat seed oils because there's like this group think that goes with it and that i guess is because bitcoin could be attacked from the outside whether mm -hmm. it's media government whoever wanted to attack it so they became strong as a unit by saying these are our core beliefs and anyone who didn't follow the core beliefs was ejected because they were essentially a weakness within that defensive system. Is that basically what you're saying? Is, is that applicable to Bitcoin in that exact way? I hadn't been thinking about it at the time, but absolutely. Even some of the metaphors like cyber hornets and things like that, think of it as this community that stands together to fight off not just attacks on Bitcoin, but attacks on eating vegetables and, and things like that. Can that then also become a weakness? Absolutely. And in every area of thought, it becomes a weakness when you're not willing to tolerate dissent from within the group and something that we have witnessed mm -hmm. um and so what happens after that what's it what is the evolution of this do groups always fragment i guess i think it depends there are certain groups that have been able to succeed by uh casting out people who go against the the way that the group thinks which works as long as you can keep recruiting in new people. Um, if you're only ever casting out, the group will eventually, you know, splinter off and, and when it's too small, it dies. And can they get consumed by a, a larger group? You know, if there's a, a group of philosophers, it becomes a much larger, larger group than the cyber hornets. Can the cyber hornets themselves implode and then this new group leads the narrative? I think that's pretty rare. Um, once you have a group, and this is probably trending into like social psychology or something where, yeah. where so I'm, I'm just, I'll just speculate wildly. We've here. gone all over the place. Um, but once you have a group identity, it gets really hard to, to change that identity. So think about sort of the, the Bitcoin, uh, community getting subsumed into the sound money community or something like that, um, which has gold bugs in it and things like that. Um, that makes sense as a narrative, but in fact, we've seen exactly the opposite, the intense fighting. So there, are, the one group's identity is around this one thing. Um, and even though it's a lot of them are holding it for these kinds of reasons, they found their community over here and they're not, they're not moving uh, over to the other group. And they're 
the people who are in the Bitcoin community who aren't in it for the sound money, of course, are going to try to reject that, that subsumption. Um, so yeah, I think it's, uh, something that happens in all groups that, uh, reach a certain size is that they, they start to have these splinter groups. And I, th- I think Bitcoin is starting to get there. The community is big enough that there's a lot of disagreement among unimportant things. So you get the progressives and you get the libertarians, you get the, um, people who, uh, are vegan and people who only eat meat. (laughs) And, um, it forces you to decide how much you care about these other things. Are you in Bitcoin just for Bitcoin and you're willing to tolerate, or do you think that Bitcoin entails that you have to believe certain things about food and art and whatever? Um, and some people do and some people don't. And so uh, like my political views have been welcomed with open arms by some people and, you know, I've been blocked by others. <laughs> yeah, know that and feeling. I know you're in the same boat. We're well, probably blocked by a lot of the same people. <laughs> so we had Callie in recently. We had a great discussion with him. And he he basically said, there is no room for ideology in Bitcoin. We have one job, one job only, which is to maximize the amount of people who have access and use censorship-resistant money. That's it. I'm paraphrasing. Do yeah, but that's it? pretty much what you said. Per- yeah. That's all I care about. So I don't care about anything else. I don't care about what you identify as. I don't care what your pronouns are. I don't care what you eat. I don't care about anything else. It's like, do you want good money? And that's all we should care about. Um, I think it's been fascinating over this this last cycle to see these different cohorts build up. This We do have a philosopher's cohort now where I couldn't have pointed to, the, to that four years ago. We definitely have a progressive. Couldn't have pointed to that before. We, we had libertarian or we had right wing or we had... You know, these other different groups. We've got a European group now, like a distinct European group, but we have nation groups now. And I think this splintering is great for Bitcoin because it, it means there is no ideology. But what I want to happen, what I hope happens, is that people then start to coalesce around the idea of money and what good money is, and all the ideology can be left behind because it's so unimportant. Otherwise, it's just going to be all this infighting over fucking nonsense. Mm-hmm. Yeah, when you have the, the group start with a bunch of people who overlap not just on one thing, but on multiple things, then they have this decision to make when other people want to join the group, but don't uphold those other things. Do we let them in? It'll be good for the one thing, but it'll be bad for the other things. Or do we try to keep them out? Have you had any difficulties within academic circles for being an advocate or even just somebody interested in Bitcoin? Yes. I need more than a yes. Um, what can you tell me? For the most part, no. Okay. Um, so one thing that's great about going through university and going through grad school, especially in something like philosophy, where there are very few widely ag- and agreed upon and endorsed answers, is that you get really comfortable loosely holding beliefs about um, things that you're not an expert in. And so if I'm you know, talking about moral particularism or moral generalism. I'm just Hold like, on, what's moral uh, particularism? It, it, it's just an example. Um, but we can talk about it later. But um, just as an example of something that I've read a few things about, I know what the words mean, but I don't, I don't really know the arguments and I haven't evaluated them. And so um, if, if you ask me what I believe, 
I'll be like, I don't know. I sort of lean, lean in this direction, but I'm easily convinced in the, in the other way. Um, so philosophy teaches you to do this, even about the areas that you publish a lot in and work a lot on, because you know, there are people who are just as good as you who've come to different conclusions about that. One of the greatest philosophers, uh, one of the greatest philosophers of metaphysics in the 20th century, I disagree with about almost everything, but he's so good that I feel like there must be something to these arguments. Maybe I'm just not seeing it. Um, but it's, you know, I can't dismiss him and I can't dismiss these views because someone, you know, super smart and respectable held them. Um, so what was the question? Do, uh, oh, uh, academic. Yeah, academic yeah. circles. So, so most philosophers, I don't talk to other academics, most philosophers, um, when they hear that you're writing or working on Bitcoin, they ask you, what are you arguing for? And then huh. I say, I'm arguing that Bitcoin is, you know, overall good for the world. Oh, it's, what's the argument? They want to know what the argument is before they evaluate. Now, that's not true of everyone. And so yeah. some of them, and probably ones who, if I you know, was talking to them face-to-face, -face, they would go through this line. But they'll just you know, snipe on Facebook or something about how Bitcoin is destroying the, the world, the climate. Um, it's undermining the government, something like that. Um, but for the most part, people are, are really interested in hearing the arguments. And I think the arguments are good and I yeah. want them to hear the arguments because I want to know if there are any weaknesses in the arguments. I, you know, I'm pretty confident that Bitcoin is good for the world, but I could encounter some evidence that it wasn't and I could change my mind. And, you know, then I, I'd regret having come on this podcast. <laughs> <laughs> I, I um, like that. I like but, that point where you had there. The first thing they said you is, what are you arguing for? It was like a really good starting point for any conversation. Yeah, I mean, a, a lot of people think that if you're pro-Bitcoin, that means you're, you're anti-government, you're anti-all fiat currencies, and so on. Um, and I, I'm just arguing that it's good for Bitcoin to exist. Uh, what's the argument? Well, the, it's the veil. There are a lot of people who need Bitcoin. And if you step behind the veil and realize that you could be any one of those, you'd prefer to step back into the world with Bitcoin. That was such a good framework for an argument in Craig's piece. We talked about that with Lane, didn't we? So good. Yeah, did you buy the domain? No, it's, it costs like three grand. Is that? Yeah. That's not too bad. I know, but... Oh, Lane, Lane, Lane's literally like... <laughs> Lane owns it already, he's Lane's, trying to sell it back to me. <laughs> yeah, Lane's like, I'm going to sell some of my Dogecoin. <laughs> sell it back to him. And so, so Bitcoin is becoming more accepted academically then, which is great. Yeah, I think so. I mean, we we a lot of people are reading the the philosophy compass paper, um, the some of the public philosophy that we've done, like in USA Today and Newsweek and stuff like that. Um, they haven't liked, which is fine. It's not it's not for them. It doesn't have the same rigor of the arguments and covering all the bases and things like that. Um, but by and large, there's there's been interest and acceptance and willingness to to have conversations about it from almost everybody that I've talked to. Well, that's the kind of progression we want. What I would hate to see happen is what we have seen in some academic circles, which is there be there's a, uh, a push against facts <laughs> and push against what's traditionally been held as factually believed truth and a political bias pushed into academic circles whereby uh, people face a threat of losing their tenures or losing their jobs. I mean, I interviewed Brett Weinstein 
for everything that happened with him at Evergreen College, where he was essentially harassed out of the university. And it would be a shame if people start reading things like the New York Times article and Bitcoin is harassed out of academic discussion. Yeah, I don't, I don't see that happening in philosophy. Good. Um, there, there's one point at which it might happen, which is, you know, the the gold standard of academic any academic article is an anonymously reviewed um, piece by anonymously reviewed by peers, so they don't know who uh, wrote it, and you don't know who's reviewing it. Um, so that is one place at which roadblocks can be set up because there's very little social cost to doing that. And so someone who is against Bitcoin might be assigned as a referee for a paper that's arguing that Bitcoin is good for the world and for that reason might say no. So this is this is what happened with our book at uh, a different press than the one that we ended up going with. And I'm really glad that we ended up where we did. I think this lets us write the book that we want to write, and this other press would, wouldn't have allowed us to do that anyway. Um, it can be a sort of more crossover uh, philosophy book that's more accessible to non-philosophers, which is what we wanted to write. But this other press had four anonymous referees, and um, two of them, if I recall correctly, almost didn't read <laughs> The, the proposal. One of them said, this sounds like, you know, a Bitcoin hype piece. They're just trying to get people to buy Bitcoin. Um, and another said something about Bitcoin being one small part of the, the general blockchain community and things oh, like God. that. And so it was, it was, and we, we don't know who they are. Um, so there's no, there's no real cost to do this. And then when you add in, you know, this is for a university press where there's a lot more knowledge and, and onus on the referees. When you just have an article that you've submitted, it's super easy to reject an article for almost any reason. The acceptance rates in philosophy are 2 to 5%. Jeez. So most articles get rejected. And so you, you could set up roadblocks at that stage if you're really anti-Bitcoin. And there, the kinds of things that happen on Facebook and, and impersonally are more likely. Those, those reactions are easier to have when you're not actually face-to-face -face with the person. Um, saying, let, let me explain to you why this is a good argument. Are there any parts of the book where you guys particularly wrestled with uh, and you couldn't agree on and struggled to get consensus? Because if you're writing a book and there's three slash four of you, mm -hmm. you kind of have to reach consensus, consensus on most things. Yeah. I'm wondering if there any things that you guys wrestled with together. I'm trying to bring more. There's one I, I can think of, which is, so I, I did the first draft of the, uh, against Bitcoin chapter, okay. where we lay out all of the arguments and respond to them. And I think I talked about like 25. <laughs> oh, wow. And just did a paragraph or two. But basically any argument that that I had heard against Bitcoin, I wanted to be included somewhere. So a lot of them are in the energy chapter or the privacy chapter or something. But anything that wasn't handled in those, um, I put in there. And then um, Craig and Andrew wanted to go way deeper on some of them. And, you know, like uh, lightning centralization. Uh, they wanted to get really into that and spend like three pages on that. And I had maybe three paragraphs. And that meant leaving some other stuff out because we can't write a whole book that's just against Bitcoin. Um, so it sounds like you could have done a whole book against Bitcoin. Though. We easily could do a book that just talks about every objection to Bitcoin. I'm not sure how publishable that would be, but I've thought about it. But that means somebody so, out there could write that book without, mm -hmm. without defending it as well. 
Yes, that's true. <laughs> just just the negative case. Yeah. Yeah. Which is exactly what happened with the New York Times article in that the only place I will give them uh, uh, a pass is that it's right that they wrote an article on Bitcoin mining. It should be. There are people who challenge it. I would hold journalist integrity to go out there and investigate this and say, this is what's happening. Yes, there was a coal plant switched on for this. But yes, look what's happened over here, the incentivization of the build-out of green energy. And look how much greener Bitcoin miners are compared to these industries. But yes, Bitcoin could do better here. If they wrote a proper balanced investigative piece, that would have been a good thing to do. They didn't. They wrote a propaganda piece. But I think it's right to have, and I think it, therefore it's right for Bitcoiners. Bitcoiners should spend more time talking to people they disagree with. More podcasts should have you know, Francis Coppola's on or the people you disagree with and, and just consider where you might be wrong because otherwise we just sound like we're the other side of the same coin. Yeah. And, and from what I understand, the, the, the author talked to a bunch of people in Bitcoin. I know he talked to Troy, for example. And they had a long back and forth. It seemed like maybe nothing got changed <laughs> in light of Troy's uh, what I assume were perfect objections. Um, I'm not even necessarily against, you know, just putting forward one side. If this is what if this is what the writer ends up thinking is true after talking to both sides, then I'm I'm for putting that out. Right? You, I think you guys have an episode with Micah Warren about the game theory of Bitcoin. That uh, that you know he's he's presenting a bunch of worries, and uh, they should be they should be heard. I think he said that you said that you needed someone to balance to balance that out. Um, but I'm not, I'm not even necessarily sure, you know, so, someone will write stuff trying to balance it out afterwards. And that's what we should do with the New York Times article. Um, Daniel Batten has some great threads mm. of uh, response. And someone should publish that other, other than just, you know, his own Twitter and his own blog. Um, maybe not the New York Times, maybe someone else. But um, we should, yeah, have, have the debate in public. Yeah. That's great. Well, everyone so, should get the book anyway. And we should... Uh, we should also uh, get get you all together when it's released, help promote it, and having a big philosophical discussion. Okay, before we finish though, what are the big, broad philosophical questions that you've pondered your whole life? <laughs> um, the first, I think, the first philosophical question that I pondered was whether people could act freely if God knew the future. So that's what got me into philosophy was if there Ooh. if there's a god and god knows the future then how can I do anything freely? Um and it turns out you don't even necessarily need god if if there are facts about the future about what I'll do tomorrow then how can I act freely given that those things are true. So that's that's what took me down the the philosophy rabbit hole. Um related questions uh in philosophy of religion like how is it possible that there be a God and that evil exists, given that God would be strong enough to stop any evil from happening and want to because God is good and know that it was going to happen because God knows everything? What, are we assuming God is good? Yeah. Yeah, it's really easy. Oh, if there are bad gods, then, or if God is bad or whatever, then, then there's no problem. Um, but how could there be a good, smart, capable God, and yet all this evil exists. There's a lot of uh, religious uh, connections to the philosophical questions you have. Mm -hmm. Yeah, for me, they started. Right. They started in religion, yeah. 
So what do you ponder now? I'm still I'm still working on that. Oh, you still on that one? How many years did it we? <laughs> that was uh, that was 2006. So no, 2003. So 20 years. And you're still on that question. Yeah. I mean, you know, I, I know what some of the answers are. I'm just not super happy. There's there's a new one too, which is uh, again again religion. Um, that you know, not not everyone believes in God. And not only that, but not everyone has very much evidence that there is a God. And if there were a God and God cared about people knowing that God existed, then you'd expect there to be a lot more evidence, uh, evidence everywhere. And in fact, a lot of people are reasonably rational and not believing in God because they just don't have enough evidence for it. And, and that's surprising given that God exists. But if we, I, I think one of the things about having a God is if we had too much direct evidence there was a God, it would massively change how we behave. Yeah, that might be good though. It, I mean, don't you want to act based on all the all the truths? Yeah, yeah. But at the same time, like my son, there's the way he'll act around me and then there's a the way he'll act when he knows I'm not around. He gets to have a bit more fun when I'm not around because he knows he can get away with things. Does God want us to have a bit of fun thinking he's not lucky? <laughs> I mean, if the fun is the kinds of things that are morally or or that God would permit, then we would do them if, if we had even more evidence. So if the question is, does God want us to do the equivalent of like throwing massive parties in our house when our parents are gone, then I would think probably not. Yeah, I'm throwing um, a massive party. If you better not. Um, so... Yeah, I guess the the God wouldn't ever give us misleading evidence, but there are some things, if there is a God, that God is withholding that would have a lot more people believing true things and true things about God that we don't currently believe. Do you think there is so, a God? I do, yeah. Okay. So that's why that's these why are problems. You, yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. If I didn't think so, then no no problem at all. But I'm writing a... I'm writing a paper in the Ted Chang and philosophy book that's coming out. Do you know Ted Chang? He's a sci-fi short story author. Okay. Um, but he has a short story called Hell is the Absence of God, where you can like see people that are in hell and there's regular angelic visitations and the angelic visitations always result in like death and destruction and stuff. Um, and so I'm writing about the distinction between the problem of evil and this this new problem of of God being hidden, not giving enough evidence for people. It's funny. So I, I don't believe in God, um, but I have, have you seen the film Event Horizon? It's where yeah, the ship yeah. goes to hell. Yeah. So I don't believe in God, but I fear hell. Uh huh. <laughs> yeah, that's that's a bad position to be. <laughs> well, I even heard somebody somebody say it once. They said, "I don't believe in God, but I fear him." Mm -hmm. So I think they fear they might be wrong. Yeah. Which, you know, all the more those kind of people, God should be giving more evidence to. <laughs> yeah. Like you're, you're clearly open to it. Yeah. If you, if you're scared of it. And so, you know, either, either God doesn't care about people believing or God is incapable, but that doesn't seem right. So it, it's a hard problem. Yeah. Thankfully in the paper, I don't have to answer the question. I can just right. make the distinction. All right. You ready to go and eat some food? Yeah. Anything else you want to talk about? Well, I will say that anyone who's interested in the book should go to resistance.money slash book, where we have synopses of each of the chapters. 
and resistance.money in general is the website where we have all of our work, both uh, academic stuff and non-academic stuff. All right, the so, trilogy's done. We, we need to get you all around the table together. I cannot wait to read this book, and I cannot wait to take you to the football tomorrow. Yeah, not tomorrow. Sorry, Saturday. Saturday. I keep thinking it's tomorrow. It's because the event's tomorrow. Yeah, the, the right. live event. The live event, then football. Thank you for coming over for this. Good to see you, man. Appreciate you. All right, come on. What did you think of that? I absolutely love this show, but I love all the philosophical conversations. And you know what? I wish I'd gotten philosophy earlier. I wish I was diving into this earlier. Now, I am determined to make a show with Andrew, Bradley, and Craig all together. Hopefully, we can get Troy in, and hopefully, we'll be in Wyoming with a nice bottle of whiskey. Anyway, I'm off to chill on the beach here in Florida, but I will see you all soon. If you want to reach out, it's hello at whatbitcoindid.com.